Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Hey, thanks, sir. <clears throat> hey, everybody. That was an overwhelming response. Thank you. Um, I was, uh, Lex and I were brushing our teeth last night with different toothbrushes, and I actually stopped at one point and turned to her, and I was like, so tomorrow? I'm going to be preaching on, like, God's mystical or, like, subjective leading in the Christian life. And then in the afternoon, I'm going to talk for 15 minutes on the Christian responsibility towards poverty and the most, like, ideologically mixed and racial group we can have in Madison. I don't see how tomorrow goes well for me. And so my wife, just like you would expect a Christian, and especially pastor's wife too, she was like, maybe when you crash and burn, I will be there. <laughs> so, but let's start with prayer. God, I pray that you'd be with um, me and us all day, and that you would speak through the, even the limitations of my personality, but mainly through your written word, and help us to reflect well on what it means to follow you. And I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we talk with people in this diverse city about poverty who very much disagree with each other. I pray that you'd make it, um, you'd make it a moment where things that you want to accomplish begin to come to the surface, and that you produce things that aren't produced in ways other than by your spirit and leading. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so um, I kind of grew up as an outside kid, and um, I was a wilderness leader, and I've always kind of been fascinated with, um, with tracking, right? And um, if you know, for only $2,400, you can take a 11-month intensive in Wisconsin where they take you from like is that a rabbit or a caribou track to like going to like upstate Wisconsin and tracking wolves through the winter? I don't know if you know this, but the DNR, how it figures out what wolves are doing in Wisconsin is there are volunteer expert trackers that go north in the wintertime and they will track single wolves for multiple days to tell that wolf's story in relationship to the deer herd and how they behave and all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of wild. And I also wonder where they get that kind of time. Um, one of my friends, and he's actually a friend of Mike, um, Mike Beresford's too, is this guy, Steve Dahmer. And Steve was an elk hunter for like years. He, he was a, a guide and he was really good at tracking. But he said there was, he went on a hunt with his wife to Botswana. And he said, whatever level he thought he was at, these guys were 
so far beyond him. They had like, there were like a hundred different species within 10 square miles, and they could tell by like how grass was leaned over, like what species it was, how heavy it was, its approximate age, what its antlers probably looked like. He said it was unbelievable. It was like, it felt like they had ESP. And then you'd like, you would track the animal and you'd actually find it, and it was exactly what they said. And it was just like, he said it was unbelievable, right? And I'm kind of like, I probably could tell that an animal had passed through there, right? <laughs> the, the, the reason why that matters today is, is that, like, whether you're at my stage or Steve's stage or his Botswana guide stage, everybody who tracks—I know you're naturally interested in this, but just hang with me for a second, okay? Anybody who tracks has to do at least three things. They have to accept that you're going to have dead ends and you're going to have to go back. You're, like, tracking the thing, and you're, you kind of, like—and then you, like— it seems like it stops, and you go this way, and that way, and this way, and they're all dead ends, and eventually you refine the trail, and you're like, oh, it goes that way. Everybody has to deal with dead ends, right? The second thing is that um, you have to use broader p- principles to fill in the gaps. You can't just follow sign all the way. There are signs, but you have to also have to know kind of like what you're tracking and how they behave, and then you can put together what's there and what you know and actually make your way along it. If you can't do that, you get stuck over and over again. And the third one is, is that you have to work actively while you follow it, but it's also passive in that you can't control it. And it's kind of a weird dynamic because you're trying to like, you want to like go find the thing, but you kind of have to go through the process of actively looking at what's there and processing it. And, but it's, it's, it's this weird kind of active and passive dynamic. Here's why that matters. The more I looked at the passage that we read for today, and the more I thought about like, well, what does this mean about God and how we relate to him and blah, 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 the more it made me think this. Following God can be a lot more like tracking than hiking a lot of the time. And the reason why I think that's important is because our expectations about what it's like to follow God um, matter a lot in terms of our felt sense of like, oh, God is there, and I'm on the right track, and all those kinds of things are wrapped up in what we think it will look like to follow God. And if we think it's going to be one way, it's going to be like hiking, Right? Like, hikers expect the trail to be super clear. They expect to be looking at somebody's, like, calf muscles the whole time, wondering when the next time you're going to eat trail mix is. There's going to be little circular markers nailed to the tree, and it's going to be, like, this wide path, and you're just going to be like, hey, and, like, just look at the scenery. And if a person with hiking expectations showed up, and the person was like, there's the first track, find the animal, they would go into an expectation tailspin. And you see, most people who become Christians, and and they realize that what the Bible says is that when you become a Christian, because Jesus is King and Lord and Savior and amazing, you will naturally want to be in the will of God. You'll naturally want to follow God wherever he wants you to go. And the Bible explicitly says that when we are justified through faith in Jesus, that is God forgives us on behalf of Jesus and imputes his righteousness to us, and the miracle of regeneration happens through his spiritual power, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and there is a, a relationship that happens there. And when people tell you that, what do you think you think it's going to be like? Right? If you had no other background, I was like, you're going to follow God's will, and God is going to live inside of you, you would think it's going to be like hiking. 
Like, you know, God's path is going to be really clear, and if God is loving, of course, he would make everything easy for me, and so I'm just going to kind of walk up the trail, and Jesus will probably be at the front of the pack, and we'll be able to see little sandal marks everywhere, and we'll eat trail mix and drink Kool-Aid, and we'll all get there together, and there'll be a great view at the top, and maybe some vistas along the way. And meanwhile, what he really has you doing is tracking through a swamp with mosquitoes. And you're—and that's why you're angry. Not just because there's mosquitoes, but because you thought you were going to be hiking, and you're not. And if we can wheel around those expectations to what the Bible actually tells us we should expect, it could dramatically change our emotional reactions and responses and our thinking in relationship to what it means to follow God. So, not only— should we accept the fact that that's what God says about what it means to interact with him? It's what we actually should expect. And we're going to get to why in just a couple of minutes. Okay, so what I want to do for the next few minutes is go through four things that are bound up with the difference between tracking and hiking in this passage in relationship to what it means to follow God. Meaning finding his will and following him day to day, and what that looks like. Is it this kind of mysticism where, like, you pray, and then you hear internal sentences or paragraphs than that you literally do? Or is it different from that? Or does God not speak to you, right? That's—most people fall into one or two of those extremes. Either they're like, Jesus should be speaking sentences to me in my spirit, and I don't know why he doesn't. That's so mean. And then other people are like, you know, God tells us what to do. We've got standing orders. If we would just do it, we'd find ourselves in the right place. Why don't we just do it? And neither one of those are particularly biblical. Both are on to something. One is on to the fact that there is subjective leading, and there is talk about God's personal spiritual presence with us. The other one's on to the fact that, you know, when somebody tells you what to do, going around being like, well, what should I do? is kind of idiotic. But both of them are kind of true, and we need to figure out how they're true and how they go together. So the first thing is dead ends are part of the experience. And I know nobody wants that. I mean, nobody would be like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we went in the wrong direction? And like, it's, and, and I'm not, when I say that, I'm not talking about what the Bible calls sin. That like, we decide to go off the trail into the woods, and then we wonder why like the way isn't particularly clear. I, that's not what I'm talking about. If you go if you go intentionally towards what you know God calls sin, you are going off the path, and it is going to be a dead end, okay? Now, you might end up wading through a swamp, and God might get you on the trail in a different place, and you'd be like, oh, look, I'm further along. But yeah, it was the hard way. Trust me, right? Like, and trust Jesus. What I'm talking about is there are often times where we're choosing between good things or we're choosing between something that isn't objectionable, something that's permissible, but like, when do you do it and how? And there's all kinds of decisions. Let me give you a, a quick example. Um, God believes in rest, right? Christian faith is called Sabbath, right? And God also believes that we are chronically lazy and slothful as part of, the, of the, our spiritual brokenness. And so we constantly need to be disciplining ourselves to like, get up and act, Right? So at 12 o'clock this afternoon, I am devoutly hoping, right, at least by the middle of the second quarter, that God will be calling me to rest, right? Um, but 
I constantly have to decide all the way through my life, you know, is this a moment where I don't release myself into rest, but I step up and discipline myself and say no to leisure and sloth, and, or is it time for me to, to rest? Those are—you can't answer that from the Bible, right? Not at 2.35 right this minute, which you have to make a choice, right? Deciding whether to leave, move cities, whether to take that job or this job, whether to apply to that college or that one, whether to do this or pursue her or him, or to go there or to volunteer for this, or to put your kid in this versus that, or to spend our money here versus there. All of those decisions tend to be differentiations of things that are like, they're permissible. You can, or they might both be good, and you still have to make a decision, and you might choose something that's good, and you might still end up at a dead end. And if you don't realize that's just part of it, as they say in the South, then you are going to get angry. Because what you're going to say is, God, I believe in you, and you have me doing all these not fun things that, like, I don't even want to do, and you have—and I'm, I'm trying to be a good person, and I go to the church, and I do blah, 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 and then I do this thing for you that's, like, in your name, and it's for you, and what, and it, like, goes nowhere, and that, that's the last time I'm gonna—right? <laughs> Dead ends are part of it, guys. God is doing more than just taking us right where we want to go as fast as we might possibly like to. And a lot of the dead ends end up being on us. But they're there, and they're actually decently normal. They were actually apparently even normal for Paul and Silas. And you would think if two guys were going to be led um, only triumphantly in the same direction, it would be like guys like this, right? But it's very clear in two places in this text, it just says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Jesus didn't let them do what they thought that they should do. And in both cases, they were trying to do something really positive for God. They weren't sinning, and they weren't even like taking a vacation. They were actively trying to do something for God, and they hit dead ends, right? If you look at, if you look at it on a map, kind of what they were trying to do, they had been going around in central Turkey. So, so Paul is from here, and Timothy is from here, right? I can't remember where Silas is from. But they're going around in Phrygia and Galatia sharing the gospel, and, which is great. But these are fairly sparsely populated areas. They really want to hit the cities. If you're going to have influence, you've got to hit the cities. And so they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll go through Phrygia, and then we'll go into this area, which was—that was the Roman province of Asia. So Asia in Bible doesn't mean China. It means the western coast of Turkey. Okay? And so there's all these cities that are coastal, and Ephesus is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It's of enormous influence. Um, this area of Turkey, ideas are moving back towards Rome and out towards the east in Iran. It was called Persia. And so this is like the crossroads of the world, super strategic. And so, so they go, we're going to go there. And it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. And that's all Luke tells us, and we have no idea what that means. Okay? No idea what that means. It could mean they preached in five or six places, nobody turned to God, and it was totally infertile spiritually. It could mean that, that everybody just felt wrong about it, and they felt like there was a reason they shouldn't go, and they didn't really know why, 
but they felt like they needed to obey it. I don't really know. It doesn't tell us. So they decided to go, well, if we're not going to go here, we should go to the next most strategic place. And up here in the Bosphorus is Byzantium, and there's all these cities up here on the coast, and there's a lot of trade that goes back and forth here. So we'll go up into Bithynia and Pontus, and it's still in Turkey. It's still our wheelhouse. We know the people and how things function. We're going to go bring the gospel there. And they try, and it says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. Right? And and here's the thing. When they decide to go on to Troas, they haven't had the vision of the man from Macedonia yet. So it's not like the minute Jesus says no— Okay, Christian cliche, if God—okay, I'm going to say half of it. You say the other half, okay? If God closes the door, he opens a window, right? Bull. (laughs) Right? God, God closes this door— And then they go, oh, here's the window, and he closes that. And then they have to carry their carcasses onto Troas with no clear direction about what they're going to do. And while they're all, like, sitting around and deciding what pub to have fish and chips in, like, you know, Paul takes a nap and has a vision of a man from death. And they're like, oh. Following God— even if you are doing what he wants and trying to walk in his will and feel like you're completely given over to his desires and feel like you are a varsity Christian and feel like you're really trying to have faith in all these troubles and health problems and relational issues and kid stuff, even if you believe all of that stuff, it still has dead ends. It just does. And it's partly because God is doing more than just getting you from A to B. Dead ends might be perfectly useful to him in what he's really trying to accomplish in you or I. But entirely frustrating to you and you being pissy about it may actually be part of what he's trying to work on. Because if you're committed to and, co- and, and conditioned to feel like your life has to be going in a direction and you need to be making your marks and whatever, and that all starts to fall apart, that can be really good for you spiritually and really begin to take you to the place where God needs you to be personally even if you're, like, missing certain career marks you wanted to be on. The second one is um, spiritual interpretation is part of tracking with God's Spirit. Um, This is really difficult for people because when you come to Jesus, if you really do repent— You say, I am holistically wrong, Jesus, and you have always been right. If that really happens in you— the response you will have after that is, God, I, what's your will? I want to be, be on the right path now. I want to walk in your will. I want to do what you've made me for. I want to fulfill my purpose. And so what you want is for him to give you an address that you can like put in some kind of spiritual GPS and hit go, and then like just put it on the dashboard and just drive. That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants a blinking neon sign, a self-interpreting religious experience. In fact, I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to who refer to their man from Macedonia experience. They'll be like, well, I was doing this, and I— well, I should make fun of all of them, but they were like, and then this happened, and that was my man from Macedonia experience, and then I knew immediately that I was supposed to be a missionary, or I knew immediately I was suppo- I was not supposed to marry him, or I knew— you know, right? And one of the things that sometimes we don't realize is that there is pretty much no such thing as a self-interpreting religious experience. Even the big ones, right? Before we talk about that in this passage, one of the things that we tend to be in our sinfulness is reactionary. 
And so it's very easy for us to say, well, if God isn't going to give me a GPS and I'm supposed to interpret things, there's no way to get the right answer. It's all told it's like a It's like one of those Rorschach ink blots. And it, like, it doesn't even have an interpretation and you're supposed to interpret it. It's like, you know, that's what God is like. You know, we could do anything or go anywhere and it's totally impossible to figure out what God wants me to do. And that, you know, if this isn't true, this must be. And so God is clearly a jerk. And that's idiotic. And if we, all we have to, we'd have to do would be to pay attention to what the Bible actually tells us to expect. Right? Isn't it maddening when you, like, meet a new person or you have a child, and you try to help them understand what they can expect from you, and they totally ignore it, and they dump all their own expectations of how you're going to behave, then they treat you like you are somehow inconsistent because you are not consistent with the expectations they put on you, right? And God is much, much more difficult to emotionally manipulate than us. Right? So when you're like, God, I expected this, and you're kind of a jerk. I mean, God is not actually, does not appear to be moved by that. Partly because he's God, and he's just, he's not going to be moved by that. He's kind of God. But also because when we do that, we're being a baby. And so it's not loving for him at all to be like, oh, you know, you're so right. You're so right. That's not, that's not loving of him. And so he's going to resist us and be like, oh, you want to try that? Let's try that. He's, but he's probably not snide about it. Right? In this passage, you can see that where it says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so we're like, oh, that's so clear. But Luke intentionally uses the word that they concluded from that, that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And you're like, well, yeah, but it's not a very hard conclusion. Well, maybe. But how would they know that that particular Macedonian man was only there. I mean, there's Macedonians everywhere. Um, Alexander the Great conquered kind of the whole ancient world. There were Macedonians everywhere. What, what does that mean? It could mean that there's Macedonians in Ephesus, there's Ma- Macedonians in Byzantium, there's Macedonians all over the place, right? But they already knew they weren't going to Ephesus because the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them enter Asia. And they already knew they weren't going to the Bosphorus. They already knew that they were stuck in Troas. And then when they saw a man from Macedonia, and that's directly across the water from where they are, they realized that all of that had been leading them. And so putting together that they were there to do the work of Jesus and share the gospel in places it had not yet come to, they weren't allowed to go to Asia. They weren't allowed to go to Bithynia. They were already in Troas, and they're stuck wondering where they're to go. And then they get a vision of a guy, of the people right across the water saying, come over and help us. And now it's obvious. Because they knew their God, they read the providences, and they received some kind of intuition. And through that, they understood what they were supposed to do. Because it says, at once, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Even in one of the most obvious, one of the most seemingly self-interpreting religious experiences in the whole Bible, Luke still says, yeah, we talked it over and we came to the conclusion inferring that this is what we were supposed to do because no religious experience is self-interpreting. I mean, how, how do you think, how do you think Zechariah doubted Gabriel, when he said his wife was going to have a baby. I mean, what is more 
clearly a self-interpreting religious experience than an angel speaking in clear English sentences. Oh, well, not to him, but like clear, understandable sentences telling you exactly what's going to happen, and it's something you've actually prayed for it to happen for 40 years. Right? And still he's kind of like, so is this going to go like this? Right? We are so dense. We are such self-deceived, such, such concealers of the truth, so resistant to its clear message. There is, there is no spiritual experience that does not require us to combine it with faith, our knowledge of God, and those kinds of things to know what it means. And so you need to recognize your hope in a GPS coordinate, your hope of like some kind of spiritual relationship with the Holy Spirit where he just tells you everything and then you just do it. Go get some milk. Go walk over there. Take a left here. That You're going to be waiting a long while for that. It's not going to happen. And it's not because I'm not spiritual and we're not spiritual. It's because the Bible tells us what it's like to walk with the Holy Spirit. And it is not that. And there are divine reasons for it. One of the things that we need to recognize, people get so stuck in believing that we know what God is doing, you always have to be really careful with that notion. Um, have you ever known somebody who's like a little bit sly and like they're always working five angles? And so like you might pick up three of them, but they've got some whole, like, great movies are like that, right? Like you picked up on like three things, like I know who the killer is, but there was, then you find out there's somebody behind the killer with the blah, 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 with the candlestick and the what, you know, right? And, and that's like a good film because you're like, oh, that's pretty complicated. Okay, God is infinitely more complicated than that. God has a thousand. He might have a million wills and things and angles working through any moment of anyone's life. It is not like, oh, well, this happened so that God could knock down my pride. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was one of maybe six to 3,426 reasons that God had purpose in that event. If we allow ourselves to be very small-minded about what God is doing— we make ourselves wanting to think we know what God is doing actually becomes one of the greatest impediments for us actually to participate in what God is doing. Should I say that again? Us thinking we know what God is doing is often an enormous impediment to us actually obeying what he says and actually participating in what God is doing. Because we think we know his angle, and so we play our behavior to kind of support that angle. And actually, sometimes it's enormously detrimental to the five more important angles he was actually working, and so we actually functionally disobey him because we will not trust that he alone knows his will and he alone listens to his own counsels. And so when things happen, whether it's dead ends or whether it's things where we have to interpret things, we, we need to recognize that, that God is apparently doing more in this process than just revealing us his will. God is efficient enough that if all he was doing in our spiritual relationship with him was downloading information about where we were going, it would be a lot more like what we would think. And so we probably need to open our minds and our hearts to the possibility that God actually doesn't just want to get us somewhere. He wants us to be different people when we get there. 
You want to know where God wants to have you in two years. He actually needs you to be a different kind of person when you get there in two years, or you'll be useless for the thing he actually has for you to do two years from now. And that, and he will use the dead ends and the interpretive gaps and all of those things if you will respond to them and trust him and walk in them and accept them and try to understand what he's doing in them. If you will do that, when you get there, you'll be ready. Or it would be hiking and not tracking. What that ends up looking like in, in practice, and I know that this isn't as simple as everybody would like it to be, and apparently that's divinely intentional. We end up having to know about the God who's leading us. And then we put that together with interpreting intuitions or leading. So like, the Holy Spirit does live inside of us, and we may have spiritually given intuitions where God actually leads us. Or God may give another person some kind of spiritual intuition that they share with us. And that really does happen. There's whole passages in the Bible that talk about the gift of prophecy, which means God talks to people intuitively, and then they share it with other Christians to give them direction and encouragement and help. And then there's also reading the providences. What is happening around us? What is there? What, what's going on? What resources do we have? What are the particulars, not just the generals? And when you put that all together, you begin to go, oh, I think I know where God wants me to go. In part, it may also very well be that not being sure is an important part of the process. Us being absolutely sure that where we're going is exactly where God wants us to may actually not be best for our spiritual development. It would be in some ways best for our immediate comfort. But if your expectations is that God acts towards your immediate comfort, like you won't be a Christian in two weeks. Or you'll be just an angry Christian all the time. I mean, there's, there's, there's virtually no Christian at all connected with reality who's read any of the Bible who would ever imagine that God is the sort of father who does that. And so we need to recognize that God may actually withhold certainty and us acting the way we believe we should, trying to follow his leading, being somewhat uncertain— but knowing that the thing that we're going to do is in God's general will and worthwhile, and it looks like what he's leading us towards, that that has a kind of virtuous building nobility in it that has faith tied up in it, and he wants us to do it because that's how faith gets stronger. If you could see exactly what God wanted you to do, and you did it, that would be obedient, but there would be no growth of faith. And one of the things the Bible teaches over and over the world lacks is real, courageous, substantive, powerful, outgoing, self-sacrificing faith. And the minute that becomes a major interpretive principle, you're like, well, of course he would show us. That makes perfect sense. Of course he would give me enough sign to see what I must if I'm ready to see it and willing, and yet not enough so that I would step out to what is good, true, and beautiful, not knowing if I'll succeed, not knowing if I'll win, not knowing if I'll fight to victory or fight the long defeat. That's intentional. God doesn't want a bunch of Christian pansies. He wants, he wants powerful, courageous, strong people. Who, who's going to take care of the weak? But those he has made who are weak that he has made strong who are powerful, not just an asset, but in faith. 
God has enormous divine purposes for this, and it's one of the reasons why there's dead ends. It's one of the reasons why there's interpretive gaps. And it's also the reason why he requires us to make decisions and personal calls and do things in those gaps. One of the things that you'll find in this passage is as, as they're moving along, they go and they get called to Macedonia. And they go, okay, we gotta go. So they pack everything up and they make a decision. They get on a particular boat. They go through an island. They get to Neapolis and they choose not to stay there. And they choose to target the most important city in the region, Philippi. That's a choice they made. Luke doesn't tell us anything about the Holy Spirit leading them emotionally, giving them an internal intuition, giving them a vision. All they've seen is some general man from Macedonia saying, please come over and help us. And they are making these calls based on what they know about God, where they've been led, what they've done, what they've seen, what they think. And they, so they go to Philippi and they make a call and they do something. And they make decisions in the gaps. You see this with tracking too. Like there's all kinds of times where there was one time um, I was with a guy named Sam Phillips. He was like my sort of hunting mentor and buddy in, in Florida. <clears throat> and I was tracking this deer that I'd shot with my bow. And sometimes when I shoot a deer, you have to track it quite a long while. Um, and so I was at this point where I could not figure out where to go. It was like, it, it just seemed like it just stopped. And so he was with me, and I was like, Sam, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm looking here. I'm trying. I don't know how to fill in the gap. And he, and he gets down. He says, you see this here where this hoof is heavier right there and not here? He said, it's favoring its, its right side. And the last three turns it made, it turned left because it's favoring, pushing off the right side. So it's probably going to do that here. And the swamp is over there, which is where he's headed. So you probably want to search over here. That's what we went over there. Oh, there's the trail. Off we went. And you see, he succeeded me because he understood who we were following. Now, God is not our quarry. He's out. We're his. Right? But what how much what you know about God dramatically affects the trial and the test of making the decisions in the gaps. And one of the reasons why there has to be dead ends, and one of the reasons why there's interpretive gaps, and one of the reasons why you have to make calls is because God has not intended us as Christians that maturity should look like a kind of servile childishness. Right? I mean, I know you could, you could be like, oh, well, okay, but Nick, I mean, the Bible does literally say that unless we accept the kingdom of God like a child, absolutely. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you accept it like a child. You also can, cannot enter it if you accept it in a childish way. Those are not the same thing. To accept something like a child is to have trust, effusive, open, driving trust in the one who rightly leads you and directs you and tells you the truth. Childishness is, I can do whatever I want, break whatever I want, say whatever I want, mess up whatever I want, be a trial to whoever I want, and mommy and daddy will take care of it. And they will do what needs to be done. They'll get my schoolwork ready, and they'll make breakfast in the morning, and they'll do my laundry, and I can remain in this cycle of ridiculous immaturity and childishness. And that is not what Jesus was referring to when Jesus said, unless you accept the kingdom like a child, you'll never enter into it. The 
There is a kind of independent, dependent, mature creature that Christ is seeking. When, when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't say, be servilely dependent on me for every movement, every motion, every statement, every, if I go like this, you walk over there. If I go like this, you walk over there. If I go like that, no, he said, here is an entire creation. You are lords and ladies of it. You go out and subdue it and bring it to order and take actions. I give you a general command. You go and rule its specifics. One of the reasons so many men reject Christian faith is this kind of servile dependence theology that is not biblical. Because they recognize, and women recognize this too, but there's something inherent in the masculinity of men that recognizes that they're initiative creatures. And when you preach a message that their lives are entirely wrapped up in a servile, responsive relationship, they're like, no, there's something wrong about that. It feels so totally implausible to their makeup. They're like, no, I was made to be an initiative creature. And you are! And yet, humbly dependent on the one who leads, creates, determines, teaches, Speaks, saves, regenerates And yet, he makes us to bear his image Not to be servile, but in his image In the scope he gives us To be initiative and lordly and noble and virtuous And to live in complementary unity As we are that in both genders throughout the world And in order to do that He has to leave decisions to you You're going to have to decide if you're going to marry that guy. You're going to have to decide if you're going to move to that new city. You're going to have to decide if you're going to get that treatment. You're going to have to decide. You're going to have to make a thousand decisions. And some of them are going to be terrible. And some of them you're not going to really know for sure what God's will is. And you are going to have to make a choice because of the kind of thing that Jesus is making you into. Or if you're not a Christian, the thing that Jesus wants to make you into. And the fourth is that once you see what's in front of you, once you read the providences, once you sense the internal intuition, you've got to do something with faith and integrity. And it's not going to be the way you may have written your script. It's going to be improvisational. If you're taking notes, write that down. It's going to be improvisational. It's not going to be scripted. Because Jesus is going to lead— Right? And so you are going to have to know what you're going to do, and yet you're going to have to be able to make adjustments as you go. You can see this in what Paul did, for example. Right? So they they get the vision, so they go to Philippi, right? So what do they do? Do they wait for the guy in the vision to come to them? Right? No. They go out to find a place of prayer because they don't know what to do, so they're going to go pray. Right? So they go down by the river, and they meet a bunch of women who are at the water, so they're probably doing laundry, which means they're probably angry. Right? I'm just seeing if you're listening. That's all that was. Okay? And so, so they, 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 they didn't have any control over that. You know what I'm saying? They just went to go find a place of prayer. There happened to be women there. They had no control over that. So they made a choice to talk to them and to talk to them about Jesus, right? They have no control over what these women believe. One of them does. Lydia's like, yeah, Jesus, I'm in on that, right? So she believes. She takes them to their household. They all get baptized. They don't have any control over that. They do have control over the fact that they go and they baptize everybody who believes. They do their part. And then they don't have any control over how Lydia responds. 
But Lenny says, hey, you guys should stay with us. You should use our home as like your base of operations in Macedonia. And they're like, we could do that. We could totally do that. And so they do. And they have a place to stay and God provides. And here's, here's, the, here's the weird thing. Where the heck is the man from Macedonia? Isn't it a little ironically strange that he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia and then he goes there and he meets a bunch of women? And we don't even hear if Lydia has a husband. Right? So he's kind of like, I know God told me I'm supposed to go to Macedonia and meet some guy named Henry, right? Like, I, I mean, I can see him in my head. I'm, we're going to go and eat falafel and walk around until we like find somebody that looks like him and then tell him about— They didn't. They just— they just went and they just acted and they read and God made them improvise and they talked to these people and they prayed and they went there and then they baptized her and then she invited them and they received, received the, and that's how it goes. And it's one of the reasons why we can't get too focused in our heads exactly what something is going to be like. You cannot control your life. You don't want to control your life. What we think is possible is so small. And I don't mean that like, we could be this huge church and you could be a millionaire. That's not what I mean. Let me give you an example. When I was, um, when I was like, a, like a little boy, kind of like, you know, hitting puberty, I imagined, even though no girl had ever been interested in me, that, that I would get married. I thought like I would get married because apparently my dad pulled it off and maybe I would be able to, right? And I sort of like imagined being married, but— I, I couldn't imagine the woman I was married to. I actually married Alexi, right? And is that because she was so, like, divinely virtuous and, like, you know, as attractive and wise as Athena? No. She's a, she's a normal woman, right? But, the, but I didn't have the capacity to imagine an actual woman. The only thing I had to help me imagine the actual woman I might marry was my own mother. Right? That's why so many people marry somebody just like their mother or father. Even if they're terrible for them. Because, because we're caught in this tiny little thing. And we're like, oh, it's going to be like this. They're going to be just like mom. They're going to be, you know, thank God. That's really not, you know. Um, my, my mom's a great mother. Not sure we would have been compatible as husband and wife, you know. Um, I mean a clone. I don't mean the same person. Um, <laughs> Same thing with work. Like, I remember going through ministry, and I, I, I had listened in college, all the way through college. I was, at a, uh, I was at a secular university. It was very averse to faith. I was listening to these, like, roving evangelistic philosophers like Ravi Zacharias and Bill Craig, and I was like, I'm going to go into ministry, and I'm going to be Ravi Zacharias or Bill Craig, right? Why? Because that's, that's who'd matter to me. That's who I saw. That's who my role models were. And I didn't like the pastors of any of the churches I'd been to. I'd been in churches that I really disliked. And so I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. And then I got to seminary and I learned about what God said about the church and all those things. And I was like, oh no. And so I realized, I, I came to this point where I believed God was leading me to be a pastor. And so I imagined what church I might serve. And it was really depressing because I didn't want to be a pastor at any of the churches I had been at. The two churches that I have served are nothing like the churches I was at. Being a pastor is nothing like I imagined it would be if I had pastored at those churches. I simply do not have the capacity 
to imagine off of my sheet music what it would look like to improvisationally walk through my life with God according to his actual leading into the actual places he would take me. I would have never chosen to go to Panama City, Florida. I would have never chosen to come to Wisconsin, especially in that I was living in Panama City, Florida. But yet, all the providences lined up. And it seemed like that was the will of God. And I, it seemed like he had prepared me for the thing that I might do. And it seemed like God had closed the right doors and sent me on the right dead ends and that this was the right thing. And I felt like that was just, I was, that was what God wanted. And was I sure? I was not sure. I remember people at this church be like, I'm so, I just believe, Brother Gibson, that you, I'm not picking on you in particular, any of you, um, but like you wouldn't come here unless you knew you were called of God. And I was like, absolutely, I think I'm called of God here. You know, like, yes, I, I believe the providence's point in this direction. I believe God wants, but he didn't speak to me. He didn't give me some kind of like, Dick Gibson will be going, will be reporting to High Point on June 22nd of 2010. That did not happen. I've been here five years. I've never gotten any kind of like confirmation like that. Other than in the providences of God and in what I really believe God wants me to do, it's probably going to be the same for you. And so you'll have to read the tracks and improvisationally make the decisions as you go. There are going to be dead ends. You're going to have to make interpretational steps along the way, and you're going to have to fill in the gaps with your own decisions. And the purpose of that is, is that God isn't just interested in getting you to the end of the line. He's, he's apparently just as interested, or maybe more interested, in what you're going to become along the way and the effect of all the little things you do around the way. Because even in some of the smallest things that you do, he's working a thousand angles. So parts of your life that you wish you could fast forward, you have no idea what the divine plan for those are. And the only way you can participate is actually not knowing his plan, just being like Jesus in every moment, in every place, as best you can. There are going to be all four of these things. If you believe that God is always doing many things, if you'll let your mind open that wide, which isn't very wide, actually. It should be, like, really easy. There are lots of things that you know, you can know, or have a very strong sense that God is probably doing. Right? The, the point of making you track rather than hike could be to learn to trust the person, not the path, right? If you didn't have to track subjectively, the real Jesus in real time, what's to keep your Christian faith from becoming a philosophy, right? That you go, oh, this is my, these are my doctrines, therefore these are my actions. If you could just proceed on that basis and not have to do anything improvisational or interpretive, you could very easily become a person who's basically a philosophical Christian, but without a real relationship with the living God who is, which would be terrible, right? Or you could accept accepting a good pathway with uncertainty means that you have to love the good, not success. You see, if you believe that God chose something for you, like God told me to do this, it's so easy first to make the false assumption that you're going to succeed, right? How many people think because they believe God told them to do something, that thing is going to succeed? <laughs> uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've counseled as a pastor whose faith was nearly shipwrecked 
over believing that God had led them in a direction. They did it, and it was this complete abject failure by almost any measurable possibility. Divorces, kids going crazy, terrible things happening, moving cities, all kinds of things. But in addition to that, if you make every move towards your success, you're actually not becoming the kind of person that you're meant to be. You're meant to make choices because they're good, true, beautiful, and noble. That there's honor in them, that they follow the kinds of things God would want to do, even if they're total failures. And doing something, believing it's in the will of God, being uncertain about what's happened, and even when it fails, could be exactly what happens in one season to prepare you for something else. And honestly, I know quite a few people who've come to Jesus by watching Christians fail beautifully with faith, even believing that God had called them to something. Uncertainty will drive us to get to know Jesus better. Like, if you can't follow the tracks, you have to know the leader. And it will force you to know Jesus better. Because if you're kind of like, I don't really know where to go now. If you really are looking, if you really are, are seeking to hear from God, if you really are looking at how the providence, just things are lining up in your life, if you, and you really want to follow Jesus and do something out of faith, and you really don't have any idea what to do, I know what the problem is. And it is not that you need to pray longer. You might need to pray better. I mean, if you're praying self-righteously rather than repentant and humbly, then you might need to pray different if you want God to internally, subjectively speak to you. But that's probably not the problem. The problem is, is that you don't know the Savior well enough to track him in the gaps. And he actually demands that of you. Part of the tracking versus hiking is to get us, to force us to know the one we're tracking better. And when you do that, you, begin, you start gliding through the gaps. It actually goes faster rather than slower. And then maturing us into independent, dependent creatures. All of these, and, and listen, I can only fit four things on a slide. I probably could think of 35. God is probably working two billion. And if you realize that, and if you realize God is doing more than just taking you from A to B, and if you realize that that is actually part of God's glory rather than something he's rightly reproached for, if you understand that it's supposed to fill you with wonder and humility and hope rather than frustration and resentment and anger, if you will see that, you will walk out of here, some of you will walk out here a totally different person. Today, you will be changed on the spot and you will walk out, instead of like this like angry, frustrated Christian wondering why religion doesn't work, you will actually walk out of here being like, I get it. I get it. I can't control him. This is how he does it. I need to think of this totally differently, and I probably better find somebody who's better at tracking Jesus than me to teach me how to do it so I can learn faster. And you also don't have to leave with the fear that you'd better do it right. I've talked to literally hundreds of people who are Christians or considering Christianity, many of them young, wondering like, what happens if you get off the path? What if you don't do the right thing? What if you miss the will of God? Will I ever meet anybody? I think I missed my person. There is only one who has ever followed the will of God. There's only one. And it's not you, and it's not me, certainly. There's only one who's ever fully followed the will of God, and it was Jesus. 
Jesus said in John 6, he said, I have come to do the will of my Father. And God said of that Jesus, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And all of our culpable moral failings in following the will of God into what's right instead of what's sinful, into what we're made for instead of, into what's selfish rather than what's— every time we've ever failed, even just not to read what we— we should know Jesus better and we don't. I mean, everybody in this room, if we were thoughtful, no matter how good a Christian we are or how long you followed Jesus, you would be able to be like, oh man, I sure missed it, or all these times. I wasn't even looking. And that is— Morally coupled, it's wrong. God was leading you, and you chose not to become who you were meant to be, not to walk that path with Him. That is wrong. It should infuriate God. Instead, Jesus Himself performed following the will of God perfectly on your behalf. And when you come to believe in Him or have, all of his righteousness, all of his perfect performance was given, imputed to you, put on you. You receive it, if you will receive it by faith. And therefore, your capacity for performance becomes irrelevant. You don't have to perform it. You just have to get in the game. Because the goal is not whether or not you make heaven or hell. The goal is will you walk with Jesus now that you're forgiven and brought into his will and plan, will you walk with him and become who you were meant to be, to live in the significance you were meant to have, that you will walk every step in uncertainty and oftentimes finding things you never expected? Will you walk improvisationally? Will you jump the gaps? Will you make the decisions? Will you accept the dead ends? Will you accept that following Jesus is more like tracking than hiking? And will you be free in it? And will you let it fill you with hope? And will you let it take away your resentment and anger that you've been feeling, some of you, for years? And will you come to Jesus totally anew because of that freedom and hope and thankfulness and humility? And will you admit that you are wrong and that you've accused him of things? And will you receive, just in the, as we, we get ready to sing this last song, you, the band, you guys can come up. Um, will you even in that moment say, God, I've been accusing you for years of things? And I'm just really sorry. And will you allow him to wash a forgiveness over you and to wipe that away forever and for you to really accept what it would look like to track him? So I, hope, I really hope you'll use this next three or four minutes where we sing, not as the, uh, the um, let's go alert the children's ministry, we're done, but like where you respond to what God would say to you out of this passage. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to respond to what you actually say about yourself? And I pray that um, what, you, what is revealed in this passage about how you lead us would set us free. That we would just be full of hope and freedom in recognizing that you act this way. And you have a million good purposes, a few of which we can probably figure out and that we should wonder at your grace and glory and amazing nature rather than be resentful and full of anger and doubt on the basis of our own assumptions. We pray you do it through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.